2: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa
3: from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth, and you're listening to Go Ask Allie, where this season I'm asking, how do you grow a healthy relationship with your internist, with your spouse, with your shrink? In this episode, we're talking about growing a healthy relationship with success. What is success? Now, success when I was younger always meant whatever job I had or how much money I was making, if I had a nice car, that was success to me. And, and particularly for some women, it's I'm the right weight or my hair's the right color. But success as you get older becomes so much more than that. And today I'm so excited because I actually have a guest who's a friend of mine, Juliana Margulies, coming on, and she is successful in every sense of the word. She's a successful person, but she's also. Got an Emmy, a Golden Globe, a Screen Actors Guild, all things i never won but watched on TV. You likely recognize her as Alicia Florrick, star of the long-running hit CBS show The Good Wife, which she also produced. And Juliana is also well-known for, of course, being part of the original cast of E.R. More recently, she starred on critically acclaimed series including Billions in the Hot Zone, and she will soon be seen, I can't wait, on the sophomore season of Apple TV's The Morning Show juliana has added author to her list of credits with the recent release of her memoir sunshine girl and unexpected life she's been involved with project als and aaron's law and is also a board member of the new york city-based mcc theater company oh i love her here's my conversation with the sunshine girl as much as i want to talk About George Clooney, Till the Cows Come Home. Um, (laughs) There was one theme that I pulled out of your book, which was the idea of success. And I thought for this podcast with you, I wanted to talk to you about what success means to people and what is success, you know, because it changes as we get older. And, you know, when I looked it up, success is the accomplishment of one's goals and everybody's goals are different. You know, some it's it's financial, some it's love, some it's, you know, Guinness Book of World Records. So I kind of want to go through your life ending with this afternoon and talk about the success in in many different areas of your relationship. So as a little girl, you had parents that were divorced, as were mine when I was one years old. And so right off the bat, we were kind of programmed to look at that marriage as a failure, right? It didn't look like the other marriages, it was broken. Yeah. So, that was kind of your first look at relationship success,
4: right? Right? Yeah, absolutely.
3: And tell me about how you viewed your parents, you know, growing up into middle school. Your your mother had a lot of
4: lovers in Paris. Jean-Jean, Jean-Georges, Jean-Pierre. <laughs> Jean-Jacques. Jean-Jacques. Yes. My mother had many, many, many boyfriends. None that really seemed to stick around too long. And then some that did. The ones that I liked, of course, um it was heartbreaking for me. I got invested in her relationships, you know? Yeah. And so the one that lasted the longest, which was five years, was Tony Diorio, my gym teacher, who I talked about. And that, that broke my heart because he was the only boyfriend of hers. That I felt really loved me. I had a very strange introduction into what it means to be in a relationship, for sure. And I also had this other side of it, which was my father, who everyone seemed to just look up to and respect. And, you know, he was so smart and handsome and all that stuff and successful in advertising, but always searching for something deeper. And he had the one girlfriend that he ended up marrying, Vicky, my stepmother. So I knew her since I was two. But it was an odd thing for me to see. And that is because Vicky was far, um, and she is still alive, uh, was far his lesser. Vicky was not an intellectual. Mm -hmm. Vicky was, was shallow on every level. You could be shallow, except she was a lot of fun. And she knew how to dress and she knew how to buy us girls clothes and um, she knew how to cook him his vegetarian meals, but she never challenged him intellectually ever. And it's so interesting because it's still a, a conundrum. Actually, I, I understand it on several different levels. My father, my father didn't really want anyone questioning him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what my mother always did. My father liked being on a pedestal. My father was a great guy. So I don't mean this in a in a bad way. It's all, sort of an old fashioned way of looking at a marriage. And yet I also know that my father was always trying to get out of it in some way. And finally, by the time he was retired, he said, this is who I've chosen and this is who I'm staying with.
3: Yeah. It's interesting just hearing this because, you
4: know, they were divorced when you were not even one, right? Their marriage was pretty much over when I was born, but they got legally separated when I was a year old.
3: Right. I definitely connected with you on that level because then I thought later on in the book, you talk about how you just never wanted to get divorced. And I'm the same way. And I waited till I was 36 and you were 35, 36?
4: I was 39 when I met my
3: husband, yeah. Oh, so after me. And I think it was because I was a little bit afraid of getting married, you know, because I was terrified of getting divorced. But also, I had seen both my parents go through a series of of relationships that ultimately didn't work, too. I mean, my father's third wife embezzled all his money and took off to Japan. So I had a, a sour look <laughs> okay. at marriage. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, this is a girl who, like myself, as a child, l- looked at my parents and thought, I-, I don't want this. This is what I don't want.
4: I, did, I I never thought I'd get married, to be honest with you. And I remember being with a guy for a long time. I write about him in the book. I don't name him because it, the, uh, this isn't a tell-all. I didn't write the book to throw anyone under the bus. I wrote it to show my own reaction to a situation that really had nothing to do with him and everything to do with me. And I remember once when he said, when we get married and, and the, the bubble that came up in my brain said, we are never getting married. I'm never marrying you. It's so interesting. And I knew I would never marry him, but I didn't really think I'd ever get married anyway, because I had yet to see a healthy marriage. Nothing to me felt loving and easy You know, the subtitle of the book, An Unexpected Life, is because I am still in shock that I finally got to this life that I never dreamed in a million years would happen. This isn't supposed to be my life. Right. My life is supposed to be tumultuous and chaotic and exhausting and scary and dramatic and exciting also, but just petrified. Because that's what
3: I knew. Right. But you pivoted at some point in your life. You changed that narrative for yourself. Right. By the way, as did I.
4: And I think actually we were both the same age when, when we changed our narrative. Because I was 35 when I went, I, something just snapped. And I said, no more. Yep. This isn't working for you. You need to start examining your own self and stop blaming others and start figuring out how to make yourself happy. Yeah.
3: So let's let's take a walk, shall we, down relationship lane? Yeah, let's. Because, again, we're we're now we're delving into the success of relationships. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't know what a healthy relationship looked like. So I had nothing to mirror it. And so I was attracted to not not necessarily the bad boy, but the boy who somehow I thought mirrored myself. In other words, the guys that were not very nice, I would take that that in as, well, I don't deserve that. You know what I mean? And I think you went through a very long, tumultuous relationship, which is really surprising for me when I read because you are such a capable, strong, formidable woman. I can't even imagine you in this scenario. But again, you know, I think when we were younger, we didn't know any better. We didn't have those parents that at, you know, sixty were still holding hands and we just
4: there was no reference. Yeah. I mean, I think I think for me a lot of it a lot of it was was that I was shutting a part of myself off because I was attached to what the title of the book is, Sunshine Girl, this label that I had been knighted with by my mother, which, you know, on first look was such a badge of honor sunshine girl. I make every room, the sun shines when I walk in it. I'm not fussy. I'm easy. I go with the flow. I bring people's spirits up. So bringing that into my adult womanhood, I didn't know how to say no. I, I didn't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. I didn't want to, in my, in my business world and with my friends and even with my parents, I was a very strong formidable woman, you know, Mm -hmm. but with men, I suddenly was like, whatever you want to eat, I'm good. Everything was fine. I, I sort of played this role that I thought I was supposed to play because that's what I knew as a child. And I thought if I, if I don't muddy the waters with my demands and with my asks and just say yes to everything, then he'll like me more. And things will be okay and easy now. Of course, I chose a, a a a man who was incredibly difficult. Anyway, he had he came with his own baggage and had a had a horrible childhood and all of that. So, all of his stuff was so difficult to navigate. Anyway, well, he was
3: like if you were the sunshine girl, he was like the the doom and gloom boy,
4: one hundred percent. And I I wanted to show him how the world looked through my eyes. That's that's how. That that's how just completely cut off from reality I was because my mother used to always say to me, you know, oh honey, seeing the world through your eyes just makes the world a better place. So why couldn't I do that for him? And also, I knew how to navigate really rocky territory because that's what I was used to. So I knew how to, I guess, surf that kind of turbulent water for, for lack of a better uh, metaphor. But what I didn't realize was I actually. I was, I was pretty miserable all the time. Oh, God. And I I just kept thinking, just grin and bear it. I don't know what I was waiting for. I actually, at one point, I remember coming home from work. I was hoping I'd find him in bed with someone. Yeah. That's how chicken shit I was. Yeah. To be able to just say, this isn't working for me, I'm out. And it wasn't until I hit 35 where I was just like, and and actually, you know, My girlfriend, Nancy, when she put it in numbers, when she said to me, I remember that light bulb going off when she said, when you are miserable 75% of the time and happy 25% of the time, it is time to walk out the door. If it was the other way around, it might be worth fighting for. And until I saw the numbers, it didn't really hit me how much of the time I was miserable. Yeah. And and listen, when
3: I when I'm reading that part of the book, all I'm thinking is you're not only in this relationship with what I think is a depressive, but you're also trying to succeed in one of the hardest industries in the world. Right. You know
4: what I mean? I just thought, Juliana, what the <laughs> hell's going on with you? I know. Absolutely. I, I shrunk myself down when I was with him. Yeah. I I was almost embarrassed at my success and I couldn't really celebrate in it because everything was measured to what he had. Right. And I I remember, I remember doing this play right after I left ER, I went and did a play at Lincoln center and, and I won the Lucille Lortel award for it. And I'll never forget this. We were at a Starbucks on the upper West side. And he said, Jesus for that. Oh my God wow. And I, and I talked my, and I was like, well, you know, maybe it's just because, you know, maybe because, because I was on ER and I I don't know, maybe I just, I couldn't own my performance in that play. Now at that point, I'm 33. I spent the night in my bathtub crying in my clothes. There was no water in there. I just cried my eyes out. And I remember waking up going, what this is insanity, and it wasn't even that I needed praise from him; it was that I needed igno- like like him to meet me on an even playing field. And and I felt so guilty for winning awards, and you know there was the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes and the Emmys and whatever. And every year it was, uh, are you going to come? And then you know, and every year it was, no, then you know, not till they fucking acknowledge my work uh, and it was always about that. I'm so sorry. I just, well, it was my fault though, because here I was every, Well, no, but
3: I was watching you in my pajamas eating Ben and Jerry's (laughs) ice cream. I could, (laughs) I could have been with you instead of wishing I was you,
4: but that's also part of, you know, I'm so grateful that I've had all of that Yeah, because you wouldn't be with Keith. I wouldn't. Mm -mm. And and the truth is, I definitely wouldn't see who Keith is clearly, and the way I met Keith was only after I had had three years on my own to really be okay with being me mm-hmm. and this didn't make it into the book, but um there was a poignant moment for me in who I was as a woman in a relationship, and it came one slightly hungover morning Keith and I probably had been dating for a month and we were making our way to the kitchen you know those days when you didn't have kids and (laughs) late morning on a Sunday making our way, (laughs) way to the kitchen to make coffee and read the paper oh yes and I had a I had a white runner in my hallway and there was this big ball of fluff lying on the runner and I with my bleary eyes like was bent down to pick it up and he was come standing behind me and he said, are you serious? And I remember for a brief moment, my hand hovered over that ball of fluff because I got scared to show that I am an anal retentive person and I pick up balls of fluff when I see them. Like, I'm, I can't walk by it. I can't walk. And I remember for a brief moment saying, don't pick it up. He's going to think you're crazy. And I picked up the ball of fluff <laughs> yep. and I turned around and I said, Yep. This is who I am. I pick up fluff when I see it. And he started laughing so hard. And he was like, babe, my apartment's on Bleecker yeah. Street. Feel free. <laughs> There's lots of fluff everywhere. I love That's it. That's so great. And I realized it was a small moment. But for me, it was the biggest moment because I was saying, this is the real me, man. Yeah. Love it or leave it. Yep. And I'm not going to change for you. Yep. Too old. Too old. old doesn't work. There's a
3: lot more to come after this short break.
0: I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports.
3: Welcome back. I decided at a certain point, I'm going to be alone. Like, this is not working for me at all. So I just shut myself out. And I bought a house, which was a very big deal, up in the hills of Hollywood. And I started writing movies. And I was good. I was really good. I was really content. And that's when I met my husband, George. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, I just bought a house I got lemon trees. <laughs> now I meet him, right. you know, and his career trumps mine. So now I got to sell this house and move to New York. But right. the right person comes when you are uncomfortable in-, in yourself and know yourself. And it sounds like you were sort of in a fear-based relationship for so long that I'm happy you were alone and I'm happy that you ultimately met Keith. Oh,
4: my God. I, I mean, I, it's so funny because three days before I met Keith, was valentine's day and i was i was doing the sopranos at the time having a ball and i had bought myself this loft in soho i felt so light and free i could hang pictures where everything was just on my terms and i was in heaven it's the best and i got off of work early on valentine's day and i went to my favorite bookstore on prince street uh, mcnally bookstore and i bought myself three books i'd been dying to read and i made a bath and I poured myself a glass of wine and I put on my favorite classical music. And I sat in this huge bubble bath on Valentine's day by myself reading and having a glass of wine and feeling like just on top of the world. I was like, I am good. Yep, I'm fine. I've got great friends. My relationships with my parents were good, but I just felt like, held in the world by and and I could hold myself up. And then 3 days later I met Keith and we had we've never been apart. It's amazing. Literally
3: 3 days later. Like I was doing that before I met George and still on my birthday every year I go away alone for the weekend just to get back to that sense of self.
4: Yeah. I think that's really important. I do too. It's really important for especially for women. Um you, you know, you really yeah, it's important and even when I was on the good wife with my baby and my husband how I still didn't pay attention to my own needs. That's what happens because everyone else was in my mind more important, but then in the end you realize you know, I married a guy where I could have easily said, "Honey, I'm just too tired to go drive 2 hours to the country, shop, cook, clean, blah blah blah. I just want to stay in and he would have been fine." Yeah you know i still carried parts of my old thinking into the beginning of the relationship because i still had this idea of what being a perfect mate is and and that just has to go out the window
3: of course because you're <laughs> you're basically giving them a contract that isn't true. You know what I mean? I remember once, you know, I started crying because I had a newborn baby and I was like, and I, can't, and I couldn't go to the grocery store. And so there's no flowers. There's just no flowers anywhere. And George was like, I'm not asking you for flowers.
4: I, I didn't even notice we had flowers. And it was just the pressure I put on myself. On yourself. And we all do it. We all do it. And that is the beauty of aging, I have to say you get older, you know, tonight, uh, like a perfect night. Right. I mean, this has been the an amazing day because my son went to school in the morning for, and my husband went to the office because I had all this press I had to do. And, and, and then I thought, Oh my God, I have back to back. And how am I going to go to the grocery store to get it? And I was like, Juliana, you're going to order in this is New York city. Yeah. And things it's are okay. open
3: and they'll deliver it right to you. It, that's, it's so funny that you say that because I had a couple Zoom meetings this morning. And before I started talking to you, I prepped a salad, guacamole, everything in the fridge because I'm like, oh, I got to I got to do this. I
4: get it. And you know, they would love you without the guacamole. And th- they would be fine. Totally fine. They would be happy with a pizza. Or, or, pi- or pig heaven <laughs> Chinese food. Who doesn't love pig heaven? <laughs> exactly. I know. No, it's what we do. Well, the two of us are also homemakers. And 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 I think there is, there is something really special about a home-cooked meal. And I love doing it. I love people sitting down to the table and eating food that I've prepared. But it doesn't mean I don't love you on the days when I can't do it. Right. <laughs> you know, and I have to be okay with that. I know for a fact that Keith would rather a happy, calm wife than a harried, exhausted wife trying to do everything. Oh, yes. As
3: would George. I mean, yes. I think when I even go away on my birthday alone, I always say to him, I'm going to come back a better wife and a better mother. And he's like, then go. Off you go.
4: Have fun.
3: (laughs) So I want to, again, talking about your success because it, it skyrocketed. But when you were waitressing at the River Cafe in Brooklyn, that must have felt like success to you at that moment, you know. You're living life. You were making on a good night two hundred and fifty
4: dollars, right, in tips. Well, that wasn't the River Cafe. It was one hundred and fifty Worcester. That's right, Brian McNally's place. Yeah,
3: you know, you were a struggling actress, but you know, we've all waitressed, and that was kind of that was a big deal. No,
4: I know, and Helmut Newton took pictures of me that ended up in Conidas yes. Conde Nast Travel. I mean, it was like I decided, okay, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to try this for five years. If I do not start making money or getting jobs, I will be young enough to still go back to school and be a lawyer or a psychologist or something. So you g-
3: you gave yourself until 25, right? Yeah.
4: If I was still waitressing or bartending or checking coats, I was going to stop trying to be an actress because I felt like then maybe the world is telling me I'm just not good enough. So I thought if I'm going to waitress I'm going to waitress at the place where I can make the most money and where it's the most exciting. Yeah. And it just was a stroke of luck that the the restaurant opened literally like a 2 months after I had graduated college and a girl who had been at my college and graduated a year before me was the maitre d. And it was the hot spot of New York City for 6 months, you know, it, I think they I think they blew a lot of that money up their nose but it it did get closed <laughs> down. Oh, I remember those times. <laughs> those days. Yeah. yeah. But it was exciting. I mean there wasn't a dull moment there and and yeah, then, you know, Interview Magazine decided to do a an article on on one of the waitresses there and they picked me and Patrick Demarchelier took my picture and I mean that never happened to me at Burger King. Wasn't there a part of you that thought, God, I'm I might be something special? There's I seem to be standing out. I guess I guess so. I think I was still really kind of insecure um about the whole New York scene and the idea of like that magazine photo shoot was torture for me because I had never done a photo shoot and I remember the makeup artist with these really bushy eyebrows saying, you know, I'm just gonna pluck a few and I was like, oh You know, or like, like, oh, we're going to do a little bleach on your, on your I was like, oh, like suddenly I got self-conscious because I never really thought about my eyebrows before or.
3: Yeah. Well, you're, you're practically known for them, Juliana. How dare they pluck? (laughs) Apparently.
4: But that was like one of those moments where I, I, I remember my boyfriend at the time, we ran to the the magazine stand the day it came out and opened it up. And there I was in interview magazine. It was like, we couldn't believe it. You know, all my friends came over and we were all drinking champagne. It was a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. And from then, then I got my first movie, you know, not from the magazine, but, um, would you consider your first break? The Steven Seagal movie? It was in that it got me my SAG card. Yeah. Because once you had your SAG card and that was a bitch too, right? It's a catch 22 because this you want the SAG card so badly. I remember I got paid $2000 for that movie. The SAG card cost 900 <laughs> to get. And by the time I got the $2000 between taxes and my agent's fee, it was like $900. Yeah. But that led to a bigger agent because then I could say I had been in a movie. And I always said I'd been in a movie with William Forsyth. He was the bad guy in the movie. And I, I stuck to him and Gina Gershon and all those people because I had had that horrible experience with Seagal and I didn't want to be near him. So I would say to casting, oh, I just did this movie with William Forsyth. And they'd be like, the Steven Seagal movie? I was like, well, <laughs> yeah. But-,
3: <laughs> but by the way, getting your SAG card for people listening who don't really understand, it, it's a huge hurdle in the entertainment business because you need it to work, but you can't get it until you work. And so like you write in your book, like I got to get my SAG card. Um, And, you know, for me, it was begging a friend of a friend who worked on the soap opera, Santa Barbara. I mean, you, you really find any way
4: you can to get that damn piece of paper. To me, it's, it's bigger than an Emmy, you know, in that moment, because, because it'll get you the next job. You never, again, have to say, I don't have a SAG card. Right. And it also means, you know, when I was a waitress, I didn't have health insurance. Oh, health insurance. You know, right. Who had health insurance. I mean, I never went to the doctor before I had my SAG card because it was too expensive. I always said, if, like, if I can pay my health insurance, pay my rent, and and still eat from acting, then I will stay doing this. Right. And so that happened probably six months out of college. And I thought, okay, I did for a stint have to go back to bartending after the Seagal movie. And I remember this sort of feeling of like, you know, because you have your you just think, well, I got my movie. yeah, And now I'm going to act always and I'm never going to have to sling hash again. And then I was like, I can't pay my rent this month.
3: Um, because it was a steven seagal movie but yeah. but but still you that was you you got your your first break and i i don't even want to go into the steven seagal story because you don't need to it's it's actually a an interesting story on how you dealt with it but it's a sort of a me too uh Cautionary tale. Yeah. So that's I, I'm teasing it a little bit because it's it's actually a really interesting chapter in your book. And it's something that a lot of women can connect with. And and particularly right now, he would never get away with that shit. Um. But so you do your first movie. You have your SAG card and then you go out to Los Angeles. Yes. And you because you're following this moody boyfriend. And be, right as you're starting to feel again, like you have no money and you need to go back to New York. You get an audition for ER. Yeah. yeah, and I want you to describe auditioning because to me, my my pit starts smelling. I sweat. I look down at the. I'm a terrible auditioner, but I have a feeling you're a great auditioner. And I want you to tell us about that
4: few hours of going in that room and nailing it, basically. Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, I know that I get nervous in auditions. What makes me nervous is not knowing the material. So I'm a very studied student of the material before I go in because things are going to happen. You know, yeah. Someone's in the room that's giving you a weird look or whatever it is. You know that that's going to happen. So I was very prepared. What I wasn't prepared for when I went into the audition was the weight. I, I at that point had, I had the Steven Seagal movie under my, my belt. But I also had a lot of regional theater under my belt. I was sort of known as the go-to girl in New York for regional theater. And I had done a lot of it. And casting directors in New York knew me and were very respectful of, of me as an actor. And when I got to LA, I, I, no, one, no one knew me at all. And I waited for two hours to go in to play what would have been a recurring role that would have been a romance with George Clooney had I gotten that part. And by the time the two hours were up, I was so angry and I felt so disrespected as a human being <laughs> that they had made me wait for two hours. It just felt like a machine, a factory, you know, actors are a dime a dozen. Screw them. And there were so many people, I don't think there was even room on the, on the benches. And I literally was getting up to leave. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm out of here. I'm going back to New York where I'm respected. This place sucks. I'm out. As I was leaving, John Levy, the casting director called my name. And so I went in to read for this sort of bubbly doctor who flirts with the George Clooney character, who of course he wasn't known at the time, you know, no one knew it was George. And I went in and I did my like kind of nasty New York, tough, I was pissed and I didn't care that Steven Spielberg was sitting in the room with Michael Crichton. And I didn't know who John Wells really was. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. I wanted to get on a plane and go home. So I read it with this terse, snide energy and then left. And John Levy came out and said, You know, you're not right for that part. And I was like, Really? You think? <laughs> And he said, but you are right for Nurse Hathaway. She dies in the pilot. Um, but I, we want you to read for her here. And he hands me sides. And I, being this stupid New York theater actress that I thought I was, I said, I don't do cold readings. I actually prepare. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you God. believe I had the chutzpah to do this? And he said, first of all, he laughed. I'll never forget because he had his, his glasses were sort of at the end of his nose. And he looked at me over his, over his rims like that and he goes, so prepare, take all the time you need. And then I went in and I read for Hathaway and then I, I went back to my little rental in Laurel Canyon and uh, my agent called and said, you got the part. And yet you didn't die in the pilot, did you? I didn't, I did the pilot. They paid me more money than I'd ever seen in my life for the pilot, which I thought was amazing. Had the best time. I loved being on that set. George set such a great tone. Everybody was great. And then I went home back to New York and, and I was offered a job on Homicide Life on the Street. And before I said yes to that, George Clooney had left me a message saying, I think they're going to have you live. Don't take another job. And how was George privy to that information? He wasn't a producer on the show or anything. No, but he was at a screening of it. And Spielberg was there and Crichton and, you know, all the cast. And he was sitting behind Steven Spielberg. And he heard him say, oh, we can't, we got to keep her. And so then he asked, I guess, John Wells. And John Wells said, well, her character tested really high with test audiences. They didn't like that she died. So I lived. You lived.
3: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
1: Select goods. That's L-E-E-S-A forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See Lisa.com for more details.
2: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A Redwood Forest would be
0: cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: And we're back. You had no idea <laughs> what you had just fallen into, did you? You had no idea that no clue. ER was this huge hit. No. Um, it, it, everybody watched ER. Everybody watched it yeah. and talked about it. And you don't really realize you're even famous, right? Until you're in the passport control at Gatwick Airport and somebody
4: calls you... Nurse Hathaway. Welcome to Sussex, Nurse no, Hathaway. I was like, what? You're not going to check my bag or put me in the room where I can't get out? Nope. <laughs> I, you know, I think, you know, that first year, we all went from zero to 100 in no time.
3: Yes. You were on the cover of magazines. You, you guys were
4: everywhere. All of you. Yeah. And also, we were always at work. So I wasn't out and about the way I, you know, I I wasn't in New York City where people can just say, hey, I love your show or, you know, whatever. I was just in this bubble of car freeway. I lived in Venice. So it was, you know, the 10 to the 405, the 134 to the 101. Like, it was just every day. It was like drive, drive, drive. But I didn't, I really didn't understand how big it was at all until I went to see my my childhood best friend in Sussex, England, and the guy at Passport Control, his jaw just dropped when he saw me and he knew my character's name. And I just thought, "I oh, wait, I'm in England. Really? I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Did it feel good? It felt great. Oh my God. It felt so good. Yeah. 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 It was a proud moment for sure. It was a, it was a happy moment. And,
3: and fame in general, has it ever been scary for you?
4: No, I mean, I'm not, I, I feel like I've sort of go under the radar. I don't really draw a lot of attention to me with any kind of gossip. You know, it's not, it's just not my way. I don't, uh, what makes me uncomfortable about fame is when people treat me differently than other people and I'm standing right next to them. Yeah. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Um, occasionally I feel invaded if I'm with my kid and I see them with an iPhone, Yeah, you know, taking a picture, then I just feel bad for my kid because he didn't ask for that. And, and I, I value his privacy, but I don't, I don't comport myself as a famous person. And so therefore I feel like it doesn't really trap me. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you
3: mean. Yeah. But also I think part of that is there's a difference between
4: being an artist and being a celebrity. And you're an artist, you're an actor. Thank you for saying, I actually take that as such a compliment because it's sort of always been my um, philosophy in life is, my philosophy in life is, what's the work? That's what's interesting to me. Yeah. The outcome from the work is its own beast that I don't need to engage in. Right. But what's the work? I still, I still... I have to tell you, like I still get um, acting for me is, is it's almost like a spiritual experience sometimes. I, I've been so lucky with great writing and the times where the writing hasn't been good. I haven't been proud of my work, but it's that's been very few and far between in that. Usually, I mean, with The Good Wife, my God, I look at the lines I got to say on that show and the character I got to play and, and I miss her. I really miss her, and that's
3: very, very, very telling when when you read the book. You know how much a part
4: of your life she's been. Right, and and what's so it's what's so interesting to me, especially you know being a mother and a, and and having a husband and and a life full of incredible friends, and I I count you among them. Is the ability to shut her out and have my own life when I'm engaged with other people was easy. Mm -hmm. To shut her out when I was alone with myself while I was playing her was very difficult. Because I was always learning lines and dialogue, I had to think like her in order to memorize them. And so one of the cathartic things about writing this book really was shedding this skin of her and in a strange, bizarre twist of fate, getting the chicken pox, which in and of itself is shedding your skin ultimately, right? When the scabs come off, it was so poetic to me On a, a once I felt better. Um, but I look back now because I feel very much more self-aware now than I was then. I think I was juggling too many balls in the air to try to even consider how I was actually feeling Yeah, to the
3: point where you got very sick. I mean, that's how internalized everything was.
4: Right. And that does no one any good. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, no one wants to be around a martyr. Yeah. Uh, So it's just been fascinating. And I really, you know, I just can't, I can't get over the, the place I'm at now. I, I, I wouldn't trade my age now for anything. I am so grateful to be 54.
3: I would not change my age. I would change my neck. I got to tell you, I would change my neck. But otherwise, you know, success to me is all the wisdom I've gathered during my lifetime so far. Everything I've learned from the outside world, from people, from working, from my husband, from being a mother is, is remarkable and you just you don't have it in your 20s or 30s you don't have the information you don't have the wisdom and one thing I want to touch on before I do my big grand conclusion about how fabulous you are is (laughs) that even when you're on the hottest show in the history of shows you walked away from a 27 million dollar paycheck and I don't want to tell the whole story here because, again, it is such an incredible read and I want people to really enjoy that chapter of the book. And the idea that you left to go do this play with Jason Robards, again, is about how you are a true thespian. But you write the quote, I decided to learn more, not earn more, which is an unbelievable moment in your life. And to me, you know that is the road less traveled but it does have all the riches in the world so and you're all about success with people with friends with family with people to share it with and you are a renaissance woman and this book it should be called success girl because <laughs> because really and and Thank enjoy you. every moment of your life right now because it's a good one it's a full juicy life
4: oh. Thank you. It is
3: so enjoyable to to watch somebody who's gone through hardships in their life and were able to create a
4: quote unquote successful life. So um, I thank you. I always think success is it. I measure my success on my happiness. Yeah. Am I happy? I think that's that to me when I see my child happy, I feel like it's been a successful day, you know, and my friends, too. Yeah. I really do. I love, I love, I love that idea of what is success, you know, and that's, and that's one thing my father had said to me about the 27 million. He said, I know a lot of unhappy rich people, honey. What's your heart telling you to do? Great advice. And yeah, and I'm so grateful that I had him to, to ask at the time. And I'm so grateful that you had me on your podcast. I'm so happy. I, you know, I've been listening to it since it, since its inception. Thank you. (laughs) I love it. Thank you
3: for being on it. Thank you for sharing all this stuff. I cannot stress enough how great a book Sunshine Girl is. It's a must read, she says. It's a must read, but it's really a wonderful book. I'm so proud of you and I just adore
4: you. Thank you. Well, you helped me a lot. I know it didn't seem like a lot, but you really helped me a lot.
3: Well, you hit it out of the park. Get your sweatpants on, go make some delicious dinner. You're free. You're free. All right,
4: honey. Bye. Thank you.
3: One of the many things I love about Juliana is, particularly when you read her book, Sunshine Girl, you see that it was not an easy childhood. It was a lot of sort of fractured living and... It's amazing that she has found this partner and had this great kid and is really living a incredibly fruitful, and I'm not talking about money, but a full life. She's so much more than the cover of People magazine or whatever it is you think she is based on the incredible career she's had so far. But she really is a woman who had to figure out and had to get through all the crap of life to find her success, and she has. And speaking of success, and there are big and little ones in life, this is a big one for me. You can't see me right now, but I'm throwing confetti on my head and having a little glass of champagne because I just finished my first season of Go Ask Ali, my podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for subscribing. And I'll be back. I can't wait to give you another season of Go Ask Alley. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Alley. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow me on social media on Twitter, Allie E. Wentworth, and on Instagram, The Real Allie Wentworth. And if you have questions or guests you'd like to hear from, I'd love to hear from you. Call or text me at 323 364 6356. Or email me, Go Ask Alley Podcast at gmail.com. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
2: Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule if you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a, a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best in class warranty, Morton buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today.